Hello and welcome to episode 5 of A Bit of a Christie. I would like to say a huge thank you for all of the support that the podcast has received. It is amazing to know that people from all four corners of the world have been listening. Today we will be discussing the Agatha Christie novel A Murder is Announced. We will learn how Dungeons and Dragons can help us explore mystery, storytelling and character development by speaking to our friends Ben and Mike at the Session Zero podcast. For the true crime fans, we will be looking at the intriguing case of Emma Malloy and her adopted son, John Douglas Malloy. I'm Hazel Jones and this is A Bit of a Christie. But first, as always, let's look closer at the world in which Agatha Christie was writing. In 1950, the Korean War began, lasting until 1953 and resulting in a stalemate. India gained independence from the UK and became a republic. Clement Attlee won the general election as the Prime Minister, although with a smaller majority compared to the previous election in 1945. A significant medical milestone occurred in 1950 with the first successful organ transplant. Dr Richard Lawler performed a kidney transplant between identical twins in Chicago, USA. This groundbreaking achievement paved the way for future advancements in organ transplantation. The Australian Security Intelligence Organisation was officially established, responsible for safeguarding Australia's domestic security against espionage, sabotage and other threats. Sainsbury's, a prominent British supermarket chain, opened its doors and Port Vale's football ground also made its debut. Initially named as the Wembley of the North, it had to settle for a more modest structure due to escalating costs. Soap rationing came to an end, marking a milestone in post-war recovery. Additionally, the Stone of Scone, a symbolic Scottish artefact, was stolen by Scottish nationalists, but would be recovered the following year. In the literary realm, Agatha Christie released A Murder is Announced, which was publicised as her 50th book. It is worth noting that this number includes both the US and UK versions of her stories. So, how exactly was a murder announced? Let's find out now as we enter the world of Miss Marple. It is about 8am on Friday morning and Johnny Butt is delivering a mixture of national and local papers to the residents of Chipping Cleghorn. Almost as soon as the Gazette hit the floor, people eagerly turned to the letter and personal sections. This morning was no different, and one notice stood out above all the rest. A murder is announced. 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 And will take place on Friday, 29th of October. A little paddocks. At 6.30pm. Friends accept this. The only intimation. The only intimation. 
the only intimation. Intimation. Little Paddocks is owned by Letitia Blacklock, and she isn't short of house guests, with an intriguing group of individuals, including Letitia's childhood friend Dora Bunner, distant cousins Patrick and Julia Simmons, and war widow Philippa Hames, who supports herself and her son independently. As the evening unfolds, curious neighbours gather at Little Paddocks, including Miss Hinchcliffe, Miss Murgatroyd, Colonel Easterbrook, Mrs Swettenham, her son Edmund and the vicar's wife, Mrs Harmon. Amidst mundane conversations about the drawing room decor and the central heating, a mysterious turn of events unfolds. At precisely 6.30pm, the drawing room is engulfed in darkness and a masked intruder appears, wielding a flashlight that blinds the guests. Demanding their compliance, three shots shatter the silence. When the lights return, Letitia is injured and the intruder lies dead. Identified as Rudy Schertz, a Swiss receptionist from the Royal Spa Hotel, by Letitia's astute companion, Dora. Inspector Craddock leads the police investigation, uncovering Schertz's criminal past as a petty thief, but no history of violence. Seeking assistance, Craddock consults Miss Marple, an older guest at the Royal Spa Hotel, who points him towards Schertz's girlfriend, Myrna Harris. Myrna reveals that Schertz was hired by an unknown person to stage a hold-up at the party, raising more questions about the true motives behind the announced murder. Stay tuned as we delve deeper into the twisted web of secrets and deceit following Inspector Craddock and Miss Markle's pursuit of the truth. As the mastermind behind the plot, the murderer skillfully crafts their script and guides the unsuspecting guests to the scene of the crime. Similarly, Agatha Christie expertly steers her readers in the desired direction, keeping us engaged and constantly second-guessing. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Ben and Mike, friends of the show and hosts of the Session Zero podcast. They shed light on how the world of Dungeons and Dragons can offer insights into Agatha Christie's works and the enigmatic minds of her murderers. Ben and Mike, welcome to A Bit of a Christie. Ben, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners, please? I'm a freelance artist um, and I have been playing Dungeons and Dragons for over two decades now. Um, and that's kind of where I met my my podcast host here. Yeah, and I'm Mike. Uh, I'm a licensed marriage family therapist. Been doing that over 15 years, maybe more. And yeah, I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. Love the game. And um, thank you for having us on. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. Now, for those listeners who don't know what Dungeons and Dragons is, what is it? Dungeons and Dragons is, I think the best way to kind of put it is, it's a, a set of rules to help do a collective storytelling, right? So 
one person kind of sits down and plots out how the how they want the story to go. That's the dungeon master, and then you get a bunch of players together. And as soon as the players get together, they're going to have their own idea of where the story wants to go. So we're all collectively at the table telling a story. And Dungeons and Dragons is one of many rule sets that kind of help build some structure into it. So like if we get into a fight with a bad guy, how do you deal with that fight? And you use those rules to kind of build it. Dungeons and Dragons also comes with like a, a, a fantasy kind of setting. So you kind of mentally are already primed mm-hmm. for being in this like magical, mystical setting. Um, but there's dozens of role-playing games out there that are pretty much the same. I mean, they're basically called tabletop role-playing games, right? Yeah. You know, if you're into westerns or right. science fiction or cyberpunk, even yeah. mystery, Cthulhu horror, like whatever you want, and Agatha here. Christie, maybe. <laughs> I guarantee there are like, some yeah. Agatha Christie. Bits. And if not, well, maybe yeah. you know. I guarantee there's some out there. Right. Well, now I have to go on the hunt for an Agatha Christie tabletop game. So we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons. But it's not Dungeons and Dragons for everything, is it? Some of them are are different things. Has Dungeons and Dragons just become the name that all of these tabletop games are known by? I think that Dungeons and Dragons is just so large that it is the the best known. I do believe you're right, Mike. I do believe it was the first of this type because Gary Gygax, when he made it, he kind of combined three or four different games that existed separately, like a, a like a Warhammer-esque kind of game called uh, Chainmail. And then he added in like this other game for like traveling across the land. And he just kind of blended these things together to make the first one. And that was Dungeons and Dragons. And it is since turned into this powerhouse of an industry. We kind of talk in general about tabletop role-playing games, but but strategically, we may have said D&D on social media because it is like the biggest grab, you know, like people know what that is, Yeah, you know. Obviously, Dungeons & Dragons has been a big influence on your lives. And I know that because you've got a podcast totally dedicated to it. Do you remember the first time you played, Ben? I, I do. I do remember that very vividly. Uh, and it's a very frustrating story because I wasn't actually allowed to play. Um, my mom and my dad played and they had friends come over to the house and they would send me to bed early on Dungeons and the Dragons night. Imagine. <laughs> and yeah, so like I had to go to bed way earlier than normal because they had their friends come over. And then in the morning they wouldn't clean up. So there'd be a table with a big map that they had hand drawn And like there's dice everywhere. And I was immediately hooked and intrigued and I wanted to know everything about it. Was it a similar experience for you, Mike, or do you have a different journey into the game? Somewhere in elementary school, I had a a best friend. I had no idea what Dungeons Dragons was, but he had a book. I don't know if he got it from a family member or something. And he's like, you want to play this game? And I was like, "Okay, sure. You know, like, like, let's try it. And. And that's how simple the game was. It was just like, and, and I got hooked. Would you say it's an addictive game? Is it the kind that you play once and you always will play it? I think there's a big gambit, right? Because it really depends on have you found the right group? 
right? Mm, okay. The group is such a, a crucial part of this equation. Um, I've had friends that have been in, in bad group sessions and they were like, oh, I had a bad experience with Dungeons and Dragons. And I was like, come sit at my table. We'll fix that. But I think like that's the that's the crucial thing. If you have a good set of friends and a good group of people that you enjoy being around, that is going to have a good experience playing Dungeons and Dragons the first time. Can anybody play? So, for example, I've never played before, but you guys have been playing it for 20 plus years. Could we play a game together? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so. I, I think that's one of the like one of the benefits of having more experienced players. I think uh, less experienced players will be just as good because they're also going to be looking through the rules. But I mean, even two decades on, I have to stop and look up rules every now and then. We do not expect anybody to know everything at any given time. So I have an entire stack of books out of camera here that is my quick grab library for when we're playing. It's probably 20 books. And I don't expect anybody to know all that information. It's too much. You could come down, sit at a table. You don't even need to bring anything but maybe a pencil with you. And most of us have extras of those too. Yeah. And we could get you in a game and have you playing in half an hour at most. So it seems that I could play the game with Ben and Mike within half an hour. But if I was to play the game, what character would I take on? What role in the game? When we come back, we talk about just that. We talk about the different roles in Dungeons & Dragons and we talk about how a game works. So stay tuned for that. We now travel to Middlesbrough and the year is 1950. This is the true story of Emma Malloy. On a cold and cloudy Sunday, the 8th of January 1950, Emma Malloy, a housewife, strolled through the quiet streets, her surroundings becoming all too familiar. The sermon had ended on time, and now she longed to return to the safety and warmth of her home. Glancing at her watch, it read 6.35pm. Excellent. She would be home just in time to enjoy Phyllis Selleck's beautiful piano melodies on the radio. The weekend had begun a bit chaotic. Her 15-year-old son, John, had spent all of Saturday out and returned with grass stains and muddy shoes, which had become a predictable occurrence. Today, he insisted on going out with his friends again. Emma wished he had joined her at church, but she would continue to encourage him. She needed to prepare the evening meal and leave a plate for Stephen. He was on a late shift that day and she didn't want him to return to a cold plate of food in this weather, although he could warm it up if necessary. At least he would be pleased to hear that Middlesbrough had drawn 2-2 with Aston Villa and had made it into the next round of the cup. Emma took pride in their home on Hutton Road. It was a comfortable three-bedroomed house with an upstairs and downstairs toilet, a lounge and a dining area. They had wonderful neighbours and she often visited them when Stephen worked late and John immersed himself in his music. The walk from church was short, but it provided Emma with a moment of solitude to reflect on the past and the future. 
It was curious how history had a way of repeating itself, first with her and now with John. However, dwelling on such masters served no purpose. She needed to focus on the task at hand, preparing Stephen's meal. Hurrying down the driveway, Emma decided to enter the kitchen from the back. That way she could start the oven before changing out of her Sunday best. We will continue Emma's story after the next part of our interview with Ben and Mike from Session Zero Podcast. It was mentioned earlier in the interview, this role of the dungeon master. And from what I understand, that is perhaps the storyteller role. Are they the main person? Are they the one that is guiding what happens in the game? There's a couple of different ways you can play, right? So you can uh, you can do what we call a, a hack and slash dungeon, where it, it literally is the party is going through a dungeon, just murdering everything. And that's totally fine if that's your kind of scene. And in that case, the dungeon master's role is relegated to rolling the attack uh, attack dice for the bad guys. And that's about it. Very, very little input on that end. Then you go all the way to the other end of the spectrum where the dungeon master has created a story arc for the players to go through. And that's more my style is I've got a, a huge overarching story that the players are going through right now. And so my role, it's sort of a storyteller role, but it, it more is a cat herder role. I have to kind of navigate them where I'd like them to go, but I have to be okay and willing if they decide they want to go somewhere totally different. You know, remember those books? Um, it was like a the choose your own choose your own adventure. You yeah. know, say I don't know if you remember. You know, it's like maybe the DM is kind of like he wrote this book, choose your own adventure. And he's hoping you go a certain way, but then the players are like, they're the ones that are like, I want to go to this page, right? Yeah. And sometimes they just grab a bunch of pages and rip them out. <laughs> and it's like, what what have you done? Ben, I know you do the dungeon master role. Can it get quite frustrating when you've written this script or you've got an idea in your head of the adventure and the players totally go off what you thought was going to happen? I I think when I first started, when I first got into to being a dungeon master, I would say yes. Um, but I think that was more just the stress of taking on this new role and my misconception of what was expected of me as a as this dungeon master. I think a lot of people put that stress on themselves when they first take that that's that leap. And um there really doesn't need to be that pressure. It's it's not that like it's not that much of a, a failure if you if you have a rough game. Um, now that I've been doing it for a long time, I'm a lot better at improv and redirection. I, I kind of relink them back up to where I want them to go. Um, the other trick that I do is I I kind of give them the illusion of choice. Like I give them three options, but I know that all of them actually lead to the same place. So they feel like they have that choice, but really you're always coming back to where I want you to be. Listening to what you're saying there about the game and the role of the dungeon master, I can't help feeling that Agatha Christie would have been the world's best ever dungeon master because she quite often in her novels would lay traps for 
us, the reader, and we would fall into them. We would feel that we had got the name of the murderer within the first 10 pages and figured it all out, only to find out that we'd in fact fallen into this huge trap and that we couldn't be more wrong. Agatha Christie obviously is very, very famous because she wrote her plot lines down. As a dungeon master, do you write them down or is it something that is kept in your mind? Uh, when I first started, I would spend about two years planning a game. I would sit down and I would write wow. everything out. It was like I was writing a novel. And I very quickly learned that is a huge waste of my time. None of that is ever going to get seen. It's sitting in a box in my closet. Now I have a notebook and I plan at most a month ahead. I'll kind of bullet point any people they might meet, any big interaction, like key interaction I want to happen. I'll I'll jot that down so that as we get there, I know I have to force an interaction between somebody to get that key moment that I want to have happen. Um, is it the same for you, Mike? I'm more of a player for a while, but I, I have run a couple of games. Wouldn't say I'm an expert on it, but I, I think my process is if I were running a game, I like to have a story, sometimes maybe an inspiration from something that I read or watched and, you know, I could tweak it or not, but I, I it gives me a good idea of where I want to go. And, you know, uh, that's kind of how my process is. So do you both prefer playing the game or managing the game, being that dungeon master? Oh, I think I enjoy playing more. But, you I, know, like, I think we all, we all enjoy playing it more. Um, I've been doing almost exclusively dungeon mastering for... Thank you. What, like, almost 10 years now? It's been a while, yeah. Yeah, it, like, it's been a long time since I've gotten to play in a game. But I still, I'm like, I really want to just sit down and play at a, at a table. So I mean, maybe I could do a one-off sometime. <laughs> uh, it, it's fun if you have a great story uh, and you have a, the right people... Um, I think I get sometimes a little bit stressed, you know, because there's a lot of things that you're trying to hold in your head as and, and people, they don't know. They don't know the story. They're trying to figure it out and they come at it a totally different way. And you're just like, oh, like like Ben said, you have to be able to improv, you yeah. know, and you have to be able to adjust. And that that's a skill, you know, like it's it's and it could be a little bit taxing. <laughs> Definitely, especially yeah. early on. Yeah, I, I totally feel your pain like. And then sometimes you might get a player that uh, doesn't like what you're doing. And then now you're going into uh, conflict management, you know? Yeah. Or or they don't or they don't get along with someone else. So you, and you're the guy that has to kind of manage that. Ben, before you were telling us how much effort you put into your first story as a dungeon master, is it possible to play that same game twice or not? It, it depends. Um, there's a couple of pre-written adventures that I've seen where um, they have like multiple outcomes depending on oh. what choices you make. Okay. A lot of times that's not the case. Uh, I would say 98% of the time if you've played an adventure, you probably know the adventure. Um, I do have friends that like to play the same adventure over and over again. I don't know why, but yeah, you definitely can. The book we're discussing in this episode is A Murder is Announced, and now I'm trying to think of all the 
alternative possible endings to a murder as announced if it was a Dungeons and Dragons game and you played it and the murderer changed each each time. That might be quite entertaining. Do people tend to share stories and adventures or is it sort of, no, that's mine, I've worked hard on it, I don't want to share? There is a huge sharing community oh, really? when it comes to this. Yeah. Okay. If you're sharing things, is it possible to share the role of Dungeon Master? Yes. Uh, So our current campaign that we're running, I actually plan with one other friend, not Mike, but... um, You call him a co-DM, I call him a co-DM, and I I use him mostly as a sounding board for my ideas, and sometimes he comes up with stuff that I never would have thought of. Um, So it's it's hugely helpful to have um, somebody else help you, like, run the game or manage the game and if they even want to be there at the table that's even better because then you can do a little bit more expansive you can handle more players what i'm learning about dungeons and dragons seems to be that it is a very friendly place to be it takes into consideration people's feelings we've got you know multiple dungeon masters to help each other out um, and be considerate that way could you tell us a little bit about the name of your podcast? Because I think that links into what we've been talking about. So um, in the last maybe like five years or so, there's been this like resurgence of Dungeons and Dragons, especially with the COVID lockdown. And um, about the same time, there was a, a concept being kicked around called having a session zero. So it's essentially a, you get everybody that's going to play the game together before you actually start playing the characters. And that way you have a, a, a gathering of everybody where you can kind of sit down and set out some ground rules of like, hey, this thing is okay to talk about. This thing I'm not okay to talk about. I might have some emotional trauma around certain things that happen. So you can set up some like safe space conversations. Um, and so when we were thinking about doing a, a a D podcast about therapy like it just naturally fit the theme like the yeah the idea of session you know in, in a therapy uh session just kind of felt like a, a nice um, natural transition yeah, it, it felt yeah. like it fit we talk about mental health more and more as the years go on it would seem and quite rightly so because it's it's very very important and i'm not sure if you guys are aware but there was a period of time when Agatha Christie herself, after the death of her mother and the breakdown of her marriage, she did have actually disappear for a few days. And there is great debate whether this was uh, something called a fugue state, where you kind of get amnesia, you forget what you're doing, where you're going. And I know, Mike, that for you, you have managed to link Dungeons and Dragons and therapy. And it's been really, really positive hasn't it for quite a lot of your listeners and people that you work with would it be possible to write a Dungeons and Dragons game that actually seeks to help people with their mental health I 100% think so I know Ben has some experience with this too but um, I mean that's in fact something that I really want to grow more into with with my practice but I, I you know like like we do play therapy I mean, I learned a lot about play therapy, working with kids and and play therapy is a lot about metaphors, right? You know, like they're speaking in their play because that's what kids do. They play. So role play is kind of like just maybe even a 
more in-depth, advanced way of play because now we're they're acting, they're, they're talking about topics in a way that the subconscious isn't putting up all these defenses, right? I ask you, you know, your child, especially, you know, specifically, how do you, how did you feel about that thing that happened to you? You know, like that, that bad thing that happened to you, how do you feel? And unless they 100% trust me or they're just willing to be there and go there, which is rare, they're going to be like, I don't know. I don't yeah. want to talk about that or something. You know, that's kind of how it's going to come across. Yeah, those defensive walls go up. Right. But now you now we're playing a game and, you know, maybe you're an orc, you're an elf, and you come across this player, NPC player, that uh, did something bad. And now they get a chance. I think they feel more free to talk about it, to act it out. To No, that's not okay. I'm going to attack that player or, or, or I need to talk to that player. And it's just I think the possibilities are you know, there's a lot of possibilities of what really could come out of a session, I think, you know, in, in, in what we're talking about. But Mike talks about safe spaces a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you need to create a safe space when you come to therapy. And playing this game has that safe space already built into it because you're not yourself. You're a character. In the third and final part of our interview with Ben and Mike from the Session Zero podcast, we'll be looking at the different roles that you can play in the game of Dungeons & Dragons. Much like Agatha Christie had to mix up her characters and not simply have 20 murderers in her book to keep the interest going, what do you have to do in Dungeons & Dragons in order to ensure a successful game? So stay tuned for that. When we last met up with the residents of Chipping Cleghorn, there had been a murder in the blackout. Has Inspector Craddock managed to shine a light on who the potential murderer might be? Let's find out. At Little Paddock's, certain clues start to come to light. For example, Letitia Blacklock appears to be wearing a large choker of pearls. If real, they must cost a small fortune. Could this be the motive of a possible robber? Well, Letitia Blacklock informs Inspector Craddock that they are in fact fake and really nothing more than costume jewellery. It would seem, though, however, that Letitia Blacklock may be in to inherit a small fortune on the death of her old employer's wife, Belle. If Letitia dies first, the money would go to the children of Randall's estranged sister, Pip and Emma. Could it possibly be that Pip and Emma have orchestrated this plan to kill Letitia Blacklock so that the money would come to them? and not her. Inspector Craddock seems convinced of this and goes to speak to Belle Girdler directly. She is a elderly lady who is literally on her deathbed. Despite almost always being under the influence of morphia, Belle Girdler's nurse manages to get her in a state in which she can speak to the inspector. Belle Girdler recounts Letitia's sacrifice in caring for her disfigured sister Charlotte taking her to Switzerland for treatment. Tragically, Charlotte passed away, leading Letitia back to England. During a conversation with Dora Bunner, Miss Marple becomes intrigued by a mention of swapped lamps at Little Paddocks. It appears one was a shepherd lamp and one a shepherdess. 
The discussion is interrupted, however, by Miss Blacklock. Later, tragedy strikes at Dora's birthday party when she dies from poisoning after taking aspirin from Miss Blacklock's room. Was Dora the intended victim? And who is behind all of these ghastly murders? Well, we here at A Bit of a Christie never want to give away the name of the murderer. We would like to encourage you to read or reread the ending for yourself. Needless to say, it is another gripping read from the Queen of Crime, Agatha Christie. We leave Chipping Cleghorn now and return once again to Middlesbrough for the true crime section of our show. Last time we met Emma, she was heading into her house to make the evening meal for her husband Stephen. But where was her son John? Let's find out now in the final part of the story of Emma Malloy. The whistle went and Stephen Malloy could finally clock off work at 10pm. The Lord's Day, the day of rest, hmm, try telling the ironworks that. Ah well, now it was time to clock off and go home. Hopefully Emma would have made him a lovely meal to warm him up in this horrible, horrible weather they'd been having recently. Perhaps she'd have bought the paper as well and he could check on the football result. Where were Borough today? Villa Park, I think. Yes, in the FA Cup. Stephen made his way home. Ten years it'd be. Ten years since him and Emma had adopted John. Well, with her having the situation she did when she was three years old, there was nothing else she could do about it. If there was a child in need, Emma was going to help them out. She'd been adopted herself, you see, by her aunt and uncle. It had been the making of Emma that. She was a good Christian woman and no doubt she would have been to church today. She never missed it. Stephen walked up the drive. The lights were on. I wonder what Emma's made for tea. Perhaps it's that nice bit of tongue that we'd got left over in the fridge. Well, I'll soon see. Stephen tried the handle of the door. It was locked. That's strange. Emma never normally locks the door when she knows I'm coming back. Oh well, never mind. I'll go to the front door. Locked again. Okay, better knock. No answer. Oh, wonder if she's already gone to bed then. Well, John wouldn't have gone to bed. He was always up playing that blinking music so loud. He banged a little louder. No, still no answer. Hmm. Perhaps she's round at the neighbour's house. Nope, they've not seen her either. Oh, back to the house then. Stephen by now was frantically worried. So worried, in fact, that he decided to break in his own front door. What he found was shocking beyond belief. The house was empty of life. No John, and sadly Emma, was lying on the dining room floor by the hearth, still in her Sunday best, but dead. Looking around, Stephen could see a 22 calibre rifle with some empty casings lying on the floor. A gun. No one they knew had a gun. Stephen called out for John, but there was no answer. He went upstairs and there was nobody in any of the rooms. What the heck had happened here? He needed to find out. And what's more, he needed to find his son. Stephen Malloy 
called the police. When the police inspectors arrived, they found 400 rounds of live ammunition in the house. John had gone missing, but was found early next morning in nearby Thornaby. He made a statement in which he recalled that he had stolen the rifle from a nearby Sea Cadets drill hall. He said, I went into the house with it at half past six, but I knew my mum had gone to church. I heard mum coming in. I tried to get out of the dining room, but before I could do so, she was in at the back door. Mum saw the rifle and asked where I'd got it from. She seemed annoyed. The rifle was already cocked. I forgot about it being loaded and I pointed at her to frighten her. I had my finger on the trigger and forgot it was loaded. I pressed the trigger and shot her in the right side. She shouted for help. I panicked and reloaded. She shouted about half a dozen times. I then pointed the gun at her in the head and fired. She stopped shouting then. I put her beside the fire. Her face was cold and I thought she was dead. I got scared and I didn't know what to do. I got some money and I left the house. On Thursday the 23rd of February 1950, the same day the 7th annual Golden Globe Award ceremony was held, John Douglas Malloy, aged 15, pleaded guilty in York to the murder of his adoptive mother, Emma Malloy. He was ordered by Mr Justice Streetfield to be detained during His Majesty's pleasure. A tragic story and sadly a very real story. Obviously during this podcast we've been focusing on the Agatha Christie novel A Murder is Announced and we've been talking to the wonderful Ben and Mike from the Session Zero podcast. We rejoin them now for the third and final part of our interview and we look at the importance of roles during the game. Mike, if I was to play the game, I'm guessing I couldn't have um, an entire table full of dungeon masters. It just wouldn't work. But what other roles are there and how do you go about setting up the cast, as it were, for a game? Generally speaking, you kind of want to have what's called a balanced party, right? And that means someone should be the healer, Someone should be the tank. Someone should be. Um... Well, I mean, you're you're throwing out some pretty like yeah, I know. hardcore terms here. So, um, you want somebody that can be able to like block and defend damage for the party, so that the people that don't have a lot of protection don't immediately die. Um, there's usually somebody that can heal wounds, and then there's usually somebody that can do a lot of damage, but. If they get hit at all, they immediately go down. Like they call it like a glass cannon. Yeah. yeah. So you you kind of want to balance all these different factors, and you can do that by selecting different classes or selecting different items that your character carries. So as a dungeon master, you've set the adventure, and you know what certain roles are needed in order to be successful. Does that come down to you to sort of advise the players, you know, you are going to need this, you are going to need that, you can't all be a healer? Not at all. Not at all. That is completely up to the players how they want to deal with that. Um, 
But you might say something, right? I might encourage like, the players. Have you guys thought this through? I I might strongly encourage the players to di- to diversify and get all the roles. But if they all want to be the quarterback, okay, you're going to die real quick. In a murder mystery such as an Agatha Christie, there are lots of different roles that kind of need to be there in order for the plot to work. So you obviously need a victim, you need a murderer, and you probably need an inspector or a detective such as Poirot or, you know, uh, somebody that knows um, how to solve things like Miss Marple. What is a character that is really important in the game of Dungeons and Dragons that you think, yeah, if you're running a game, you might need to have them along? Rogues are okay at fighting, but they're really good at like picking locks and and pickpocketing and things like that. So the first time you come to a locked door, the rogue is the one that's going to go up and unlock the door and get you through it. But they can also check to see if there's a trap on the door or anything like that. If you don't have a rogue in your party, somebody else has to now do that task. And if they don't have the skill to unlock the door, they've got to just bust the door down. And if you bust the door down, you're triggering whatever trap is there. If it's a a splash of acid or an arrow in the neck, that's going to hurt. So not, not balancing that party so that you have all your bases covered is um, totally an option, but it's kind of at your own risk. When the player receives damage or something happens to them, whose job is it to keep track of that? Is it yours as the dungeon master or is it theirs as the player? Currently, in the current system of Dungeons & Dragons, that's up to the player to keep track of. They've got a, they got a character sheet that they keep all their information on and they track that information. In the older editions, all the way back to the beginning... The dungeon master would keep track of all that stuff. A lot of stuff you got to kind of manage and keep track of. So it's much easier to give the players that agency and be like, you're now in charge of keeping track of your character's health. When I'm doing the podcast and I'm trying to um, tell Agatha's stories, obviously no one could tell them just like her. But when I'm trying to sort of summarize them, I do tend to put um, sound effects in the background just to try and make um, people feel more present and that they're actually there in that situation. Does that happen in Dungeons and Dragons where you use sound effects and 3D effects to make it almost feel real? Definitely. Um, when, When we used to play in person, I would mix CDs to take in on certain for certain games so that you could have like background music in the background. Did you, did you have like soundtrack? It's like, this is the, the song I'm going to play when they make a mistake. Well, <laughs> no, I would have like, I would have some, some tension building music. Oh, that's cool. And I would have some like fight music and, and I would like put a track on repeat. They'd be like long tracks and they would just be like ambient noise tracks. Mm. And then if you started getting into a situation that I wanted the tension to rise, I would switch over to the tension track and just put that on repeat. That's cool. And then if you got into a combat, I would switch over to the combat music. So the audio tune would immediately kind of prime the players. And how long do games normally last? You can do what we call a one-off. Like it's a short story, essentially, that is planned to start and end and just be done. Range from three to 20 hours. 
would be the, the the range I would give them. Like anywhere between three and twenty hours, you're looking at a one off. Those inevitably lead to long campaigns. Our current campaign just hit two years old, and you guys are about thirty percent through it. It became quite popular again, uh, or even more popular, I should say, during the COVID-19 pandemic, didn't it? This is an incredibly social game. You have to have a dungeon master and other players. You have to connect with other people. It's more fun that way. So I think this was like the perfect storm of people are locked at home. They're not going to work. They're you know, VTTs were launching right at the beginning and the pandemic just really kind of set the stage for them. And you had these actors that were popularizing it. You had Stranger Things that was popularizing it. Yeah. It just just kind of aligned and exploded. In our normal lives at home, at work, at formal occasions, weddings, baptisms, uh, birthday parties, uh, galas, charity functions, there are codes of conduct, things that people do and don't do. Is there a code of conduct for Dungeons and Dragons? Could you be kicked out if you behaved inappropriately? I, I think so. I mean, we, we talk about session zero, right? And and we've mentioned in our show, it's like kind of like this living covenant or contract that we we make together. The DM, the players, the players towards the DM, the DM towards the players, the players towards each other. You know, it's like, you know, the idea is we're not out here to make your Friday night difficult or worse, your life work. Like, it should be fun. It should be respectful. And and I guess we're always learning that, though, too. Yeah. You know, like, like even sometimes as a player, you're playing the game and you don't realize how your actions make the DM feel. Right. And so that's that's something that I think is is always growing. Or or even other people at the table. We, yeah. We've had set, uh, situations at our table where one player does something that he thinks is funny and it may have been funny once or twice. But after, you know, after time. It, it gets to be hurtful to other people at the table. That happens. You, you can hurt each other at the table. So you, you got to have that respect, that mutual like respect of we, we are going to be friends at the end of this. So if there are people listening, uh, Ben and Mike, that think, actually, do you know what? Totally misunderstood Dungeons and Dragons or tabletop games. Um but I don't really want to play um, a fantasy thing. That's not really me. I'm looking for something else. What other choices are there? If fantasy is not your thing, re- remember there is a tabletop role-playing game for whatever your thing is. If you're into mystery horror, if you want you know, Cthulhuian mm-hmm. eldritch horror, right. if you want westerns, if you want dystopian apocalypse, there is a game out there for you. So don't think it's just dragons and, and magic. There is a game for everybody out there. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the final questions definitely has to be, have you seen an Agatha Christie Dungeons and Dragons game? And have you even played it? So I've seen campaigns that are based on Agatha Christie novels. And I've even based a, a campaign, like a little one-off on an Agatha Christie uh, mystery 
and I've never played it because I, I just haven't found the group that I think would do it any good justice. The one I wrote is based on a like a dinner party setting. I don't remember the the name of the novel, but it was a dinner party setting. And I was like, that is a fantastic starting point. And I just I kind of expanded it from there. And it, the the idea that everybody is together for this big dinner party and over the course of the night, everyone starts getting killed. And I was like, this, this is perfect. This is so good. So easy to adapt to the setting. Um, and that that's a lot of times what it is. It's just finding something that's easy to adapt to the setting and re-theme in the, the Dungeons and Dragons style. I'm hoping by now we've got a lot of people listening who are suddenly thinking of throwing a dinner party and maybe the lights go out and one by one your character sheets disappear and you're, and you're dead, you're out of the game. Um, a bit like, uh, and then there were none. I think that would be pretty fabulous. Anyway, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here and um, I, I'm hoping that there will be people out there who have now, like me, got the bug for Jun- Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so, if they if they do, how can they get in contact with you? How can they listen to your show? Um, because I want to obviously make sure that as many people as as possible can take up this as a hobby if they if they are interested. So you you can find us at Session Zero Podcast. Um, we are on all the major podcast streaming services correct whether you do apple or iheart or spotify we are on all of them it is a bright pink logo uh we're on twitter twitter facebook uh we're on instagram reddit even yeah well also we have a a patreon yeah like so um you know we're doing this on our own time and you know if 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 anyone likes what we're doing and they want to support us um we also give out different benefits for being a Patreon member. Like we have a Discord where we're, we're building a community and we have a newsletter. And, and um, you know, Ben said he's an artist. Sometimes he, he's going to share some some art with... Um, Make know. some art for the community yeah. so that you can use it in your games if you want to. Um, and we'll have a monthly poll whether or not you want that to be a, a character or an object to show to your players or like a, a environment setting and I'll, I'll do the art for that. And uh, so you get a lot of benefits for being a patron, but uh, you don't need to, you can just come join us on, on any of the other social media sites and hang out with the group. We got a big Facebook group. We got yeah, a big Twitter group growing, going. Yeah. So we'd love to have you join us. That brings us to the end of episode five of A Bit of a Christie. Thank you ever so much for joining us. We do hope that you have enjoyed the show and that you have enjoyed listening all about Dungeons and Dragons, but also that very important story of Emma Malloy. And we cannot forget, of course, the wonderful works of Agatha Christie, the true queen of crime. If you would like to join us on Twitter and Facebook, simply search for a bit of a Christie, all one word. And just like the Session Zero podcast, we are on all major podcast hosts. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Hazel Jones, and this has been A Bit of a Christie.